Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. Can you just let our guests know who are who may want to get to know you a little bit more personally, like who you are and how you first got involved with the Independent Baptist Movement. Certainly. My name is Rebecca Palmer, and I am an author. I kind of fell into that after getting my degree from an independent fundamental Bible college. Uh, I was seeking to um, just be a, a better... Kind of like, uh, well, as IFB people would know, um, being a missionary and, uh, wanting to tell others about, about Jesus and your faith was a big push in IFB. But after I left, I was seeking to just be a better citizen of the world and assisting people who don't necessarily share my beliefs. Right. With that said, um, I was involved in IFB because I was brought up as a child in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. Okay. My family got involved when I was probably four or five years old. We started attending a Baptist church. They didn't designate themselves as IFB then. It was not until um, they got a new pastor that was very um, Hiles-esque, I would say, <laughs> whereas the pastor we had before actually criticized a lot of Jack Kyle's way of doing things. Okay. But uh, it was definitely Big B Baptist, I would say. We had people in the right. pulpit, I can remember as a kid, like jokes. Like they would say, you know, like, well, other denominations might be going to heaven, but why not go first class and be a Baptist? It was definitely that Big B John R. Rice Baptist, but right. not the, the Hiles vein until uh, the new pastor came when I was just starting in the youth group, like 13 years old. So nice. that's when we started with the Hiles Anderson Youth Conferences and um, so 
such things. Got it. Got it. So um, would you say that your initial, um, it sounds like, but is, would you say that your initial experience was a positive one then of, you know, just, you know, maybe feeling a sense of belonging or, you know, feeling kind of at home within that world? It was, I'm going to say it was complicated because there was part of me that felt at home in the world as far as this is a place I'm going outside of my family. Uh, just I would think like any kid would experience growing up as a, a you know a young kid, but there was also a dark side to that, right. which I didn't really acknowledge about myself till much later, as uh, I was sexually abused by the assistant pastor's son mm-hmm. when when I was like four or five years old. So but I didn't have the language to say what was going on. Yeah. Um, my, my, both my parents, well, my mom specifically came out of a Catholic background. And when my, my middle brother and I were like nine and 10 years old, she gave us books um, because she was a good mother. She was going to give us the talk. And they were, uh, they were very Catholic, uh, Christian, like, okay, when, you know, God has mommy and daddy and they get married, this is what they do type lingo but as a 10 year old I remember in my head thinking well the babysitter did this with me and that we weren't a mommy and a daddy but at that point I was going through a lot of um, physical problems I had been diagnosed with a rare disease around the same time I was getting sexually abused Um, Mm. so there was a lot medically going on with me I had uh, the rare disease is called cystinosis, and just for some background on that, as it's not something that is probably readily recognizable to most people, right. it's um, a disease with a that's cellular in your DNA. So my cells all have issues with producing an amino acid. So okay. instead of pro- protein going in and out where it needs to go, my cells hoard it and crystallizes. So these crystals take over um, the kidneys, the eyes, the pancreas, the liver. Um, there's bone and muscle issues with the disease. There can be um, different things going on with the brain as well. So by the time I was t- 10 years old, I was in complete kidney failure. Um, wow. So my, my, my parents had that on their plate. Um, and so there was, uh, you know, more more than just uh, other other stressors going on in our lives. Um, and I, I would be transplanted by the time I was 12 years old. My my mom actually was my donor. Um, wow. She she gave me my kidney in June of 99, and then well, before she gave me my kidney, she had my youngest brother in March of 99 because you can't donate organs when you're pregnant. Um, right. <laughs> she was able to get healthy enough. Then in June, she gave me her eldest daughter a kidney. So wow. um, we had that going on and so I wasn't really talking about about things they were just kind of in the, in the back of my head I was attending the the school associated with our the childhood church right um it was the summer between sixth and seventh grade that I had the kidney transplant but then uh that when I was going into seventh grade I didn't attend a lot of school because something that maybe not a lot of people know is with any solid organ transplant or stem cell transplant, there is a risk of cancer. 
Hmm. And with kidney transplant recipients, um, it's like a 5% chance. And I was that 5%. So hmm. I, uh, I got diagnosed with cancer that December. Um, which it was called B-cell lymphoma or post-transplant proliferative disorder. And I started getting treated with chemotherapy. And at that time, the people that were running our youth group were the parents of the teenager that had sexually abused me. And they would come up to the hospital and the youth group would sing to me, which, yeah, was a comfort. But on the other hand, it was like, how, what am I supposed to say about this? And right. as a writer and an author, I didn't really delve into this till I was much older and writing about certain – in a lot of writing classes, they'll ask, like, write about your first memory or write about mm. something that happened to you, your your junior high school, or they'll give you prompts like that. And I would kind of stray away from a lot of the heavier emotions yeah. and focus on the visceral things like my kidney transplant or the cancer, and it it's kind of as somebody who a lot of my books contain poetry is very poetic and things. Um, I was noting like the symbolism in like, you know, you can't see a cancerous lump and nobody really could see that a lot of times. Yes. I was feeling ill because I'm a disabled um, female, but also I was feeling ill because I wasn't talking about, I had this ginormous secret that I was, I was holding and hiding and, the IFB in particular, but also many other types of religions and faiths have an interesting relationship with disability in general. Um, I mentioned to you that I was, I started experiencing the, uh, I'm going to meetings at, it's a, it's called Crip Camp. It's a documentary on Netflix. Okay. And because of that documentary, a lot of, um, disability justice people have started speaking out and they're doing this virtual summer camp thing that actually started yesterday. And the speakers were actually noting a lot of the intersectionality with uh, being disabled and things like race and gender and sexuality. And one thing that we didn't get to, but is very interesting to me and I would like to talk about is the religious and faith aspect as especially growing up IFB after I experienced these things at a young age, like transplant and cancer, oftentimes my testimony, I would be asked to speak even though I was a female, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of IFB, it's usually like, oh, get the preacher boys up there, the preacher boys, the preacher boys. But right. Re- Rebecca had this great testimony, and at the time, it's like I have good and bad. It's like it's a mix. It's a mixed bag because I learned a lot of the speaking skills that I have today are because I was literally dragged up to give my testimony about Jesus and God at this time in my life where I had these horrible medical things and I came out on the other side. And now that I look back, it was completely ableist, which is a term meaning uh, how, how to best describe ableism is that you look at somebody with a disability and you might say things like, Oh, I feel so blessed that, you know, my health is so good and theirs is not. And if you really examine that statement, why isn't the person with the disability blessed? Did God not bless them too? Does God love them less or hate them more because they have this crippling disease or because they can't do things just like you do? Um, I guess another example of ableism will be like 
the inferiority complex, like if you're able-bodied, you matter more than somebody yeah. who isn't isn't disabled. And you see that in in every space, but specifically IFB, unless your disability came from serving Jesus or something that you can attach spirituality to, a lot of times you'll even get people accusing you of, well, what, what sin did you do to create this? Mm, yeah deformity or to create this constant and I didn't really start as a teenager there would be a lot of um my mom actually got a lot of comments like well maybe you ate something wrong when you were pregnant Mm. with her maybe it's because you and your husband uh, didn't wait until marriage because my my dad got saved later in life as did um my mother and so Actually, a lot fell on them, which made now, as I am the age they were when they had me and my my middle brother, I'm like, holy cow, that's awful to say to somebody about their young child yeah. who's going through these hospital things. Like, yeah, the just amount of guilt that you feel is is immense. You know, when someone's saying things like that to you. Yes, yes. So it was more reflected on my parents back then. Um, for myself. Sometimes you know, it really wasn't until I hit Bible college, which was a Bible college, a fundamentalist college that was recommended by my church. Um, and I didn't know anybody down there. It wasn't like there was family down there. I went six hours away from home. And as someone who needs regular labs, because I'm still, you know, even though you get your organ transplant and there's still every year you have to get lab work done you have to keep you have to maintain that organ and take care of it so i i go down to this bible college six hours away to find new doctors and um just maintain my health while also doing this rigorous bible college schedule because i'm not a preacher's kid or you know i was born with this disease so it's like i'm pushed and pushed and if i don't do this then it's oh, you're lazy or you just don't, you know, you're not doing what God wants you to do. And it gets very spiritualized and I'm starting to feel this intensity mm-hmm. of I'm maybe I'm not a good enough Christian. What does God want with a, a disabled person? Unless I use this as something to glorify him, there's really no point in living my life because I'm a disabled female. Right. And that kind of intertwined with also being being a woman down at Bible college, whereas in my home church, people wanted me to speak and talk about my story. It wasn't so much like that down at at the Bible college, especially because I was a woman, not a man. When a man had a story of a health challenge, he could say it from the pulpit. It wasn't necessarily for me. So that kind of dovetailed into a lot of different extra health problems that I ended up um, getting diagnosed with migraines and irritable bowel syndrome and had my gallbladder removed the week of finals down um, at Bible College. And, you know, that could always be like, oh, well, you were sick before you came down here, but the, the, the stress levels yeah. Um, yeah. and the requirements were crazy, right. <laughs> even for an no. able-bodied person. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a unique experience to, to have um, going through that world. And you know, in, especially in a environment that is so, you know, generally so performance based to, to feel or to be, you know, 
to be made to feel like you don't measure up to some standard is not, it's not a good way to go through life. And especially through an education experience where there is that stress that you're mentioning. Um, and so I, obviously, you know, the, you know, the illness was something that was not so hidden, but, you know, you mentioned, um, obviously the abuse that you experienced when younger and, um, carrying that secret, how long did you carry that secret through, was it through college? Was it through high school? At what point did you feel comfortable to come forward and say what had happened? So I spoke about it for the first time when I was about 14 okay. and I had, I told um, my parents and they, um, as you know, they were taught to do, we went to the then pastor of the church I grew up in. And he told us that he would counsel me and the teenager who did that, who now at this time was, you know, pushing 30 years old, because this is uh, seven years later, seven, eight years later. He says he's going to counsel us separately. And it was like, I was four or five at the time. This person was 13 at the time, and the pastor's treating it like it was some sort of consensual act. and. At that time, you know, I'm not realizing that this is completely wrong, and and neither are my parents. And it, we were told to keep quiet about it. So I stuff it, and I don't start. Every once in a while, I would, you know, when I would have um, just break from keeping the secret and emotional moments, um, it would come up again. But then I would always get like, oh, well, you really shouldn't. Because it would usually happen at school and things, and right. you, you know, you really shouldn't be talking about this. Um, then I go to Bible college, and I have there's another incident that happens at the Bible college. One of the deacons, um, his wife, her mother had kidney issues, and her and his wife took mm-hmm. care of um, her mother, and so. They just, they had heard my story, my medical story, and thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll kind of help you out with appointments and things. My wife is used to this because her mother had a trans dialysis, transplant kidney stuff. We'll, we'll figure this out. Um, in my third year down there, he attempts to put his hands on me and mm-hmm. his face and his lips and things like that with his wife in the next room. And... I'm about 20, 21, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to let this go for years like I did when I was a kid. So I go right, right away to the dean of women, and her response is, oh, you're absolutely sure this happened because if you're, you know, you really, you do realize what you're accusing this man of. He's a, he's a man mm-hmm. of God. You do realize, and it's like, yes, I do realize what I'm accusing this man of. It, it, it happened. Can you please help? And sure. the pastor of that church you know, came in and the questions weren't to assist myself as someone who was getting harassed and touched. It's like, okay, well, why, why would you let him do that? And it's more like those kind of questioning. And I remember having to write an apology note to this man's wife because Mm -hmm. of what happened. So it was completely, it just was very confusing, a very confusing time. And, uh, we were told not again. I was told not to tell anybody. You know, you don't. Right. We don't want to take down. You know, if, if this came out, this Bible college and this church would just be under fire. They would have to close down 
the Bible college and other girls had heard similar things. Um, one of the jobs I worked at the Bible college was the front desk and we were trained in school that, you know, like letting strange people in the building. And it was kind of like the theme that if a rape ever happened on campus and it was always talked about in the arbitrary and, and other coming in, never, somebody inside the church or right or staff or anything it was always well if somebody comes in and commits the rape this church is done this and it's going to be on you that this ministry is is going down and it it was very accusatory of the whistleblower right when i when i went home that summer it just so happened that the pastor of the then pastor of the church i grew up and was friends with that deacon who attempted to assault me and uh they believed eventually believed the deacon over me um so it was very unwelcome my my home church became very unwelcoming i didn't feel a part of it i felt very on the out, outside i began um seeking and questioning more just even with all the bible reading i did as a bible college student things weren't lining up and i was um, realizing different doctrines and things were very watered down in IFB. Their care for people and their, they said one thing and did another. And that I'm, I'm a very empathetic person and that right. really started to bother me around the same time as well. And not being able to talk about this treatment. I mean, the then pastor's wife of the church was accusing me of provocative dress and the typical which I'm sure many people have that have experiences with IFB understand right. the, the fire that hits women if there's any talk about any sort of sexual thing going on that's not that's violatory it's always on on the woman and they always pick out that story of Dinah or like Potiphar's wife and it's like okay this is completely different um there was a lot of that going on with with the women in IFB and what they would say to me. So until it wasn't until I, I ended up graduating from that Bible college. And when I had come home, I was a wreck physically, me medically, because I had had my gallbladder removed. I had these migraines, irritable bowel syndrome on top of taking. Right. So with the rare disease, I take the treatment I take. Um, it used to be every six hours but now it's every 12. At that time, I was taking medication every six hours for this disease. And I just felt completely used up mentally, emotionally, spiritually, everything. And I was just, I remember being so bereft that I felt like God had abandoned me <laughs> in like a burning right. building. And then I felt guilty for feeling that way. And so I ended up the only thing I really knew how to do is be an excellent student as someone. Uh, part of the ableism that I internalized is, while well, my body is pretty much a mess, I was smart and am smart, and that in and of itself um, can cause a complex where I feel like I'm maybe better than somebody with a learning disability or with cognitive um, issues, which is not true. I am not worth any more than people who struggle with those. Right. But at that time, I was like, okay, I excel at academics. I got to go back. And I chose a university. And my childhood church was like, 
you're going to, it's just going to be terrible. They're anti-God, they're this, they're that, um, which I found the exact opposite going to university. I found a lot of professors that engaged in their local churches. They weren't mm. IFB. They were, right. you know, Lutheran, Catholic, Episcopalian, Congregational, but they were very open to after class discussing things. And even those professors that weren't exactly, you know, people of faith, they may have been, you know, completely different. Actually, one of the professors that impacted me the most was a professor who talked about he was very um open about being gay and mm. his politics, but he was very appropriate. And when I say appropriate, he um, he wanted us to think for ourselves and he wanted to, you know, engage his students. So I know I would meet him in his office and we would talk and he I was pleasantly surprised to find out he attended a, a local church. And we started talking about um, the intersection of, of LGBTQIA and religion. And that was something I completely blown away with. Um, he was he really helped. I would say grow up my writing from my first book to my second book. He really, he really challenged me. And to this day, I keep in contact with him because he also struggles with health issues. And we have that in common um, with the type of activism work he does. And uh, especially his students that may struggle mentally and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I decided to go to this university and, I thought I, I kind of had in my head missionary work still, so I was enrolled with some social work things. So at this point, you're still considering yourself to be IFB. You're just changing a college to not be within that world. Correct, correct. Okay. Um, so I'm doing these social work classes, and I'm realizing there's no way I can be a counselor or therapist to somebody because I'll start bawling my eyes out. And, you know, right. somebody who's going to be in, in therapy and and helping somebody else can't be a pile on the floor. And I'm thinking, I need to go to therapy. So at Mm. this point, that's what moved me to go seek therapy for myself. And I was probably 23, 24. I um, start going to therapy and start the healing process of this childhood sexual abuse that happened, as well as um, the sexual, the attempts of sexual things at um, the Bible college I went to, and I'm completely shocked in a good way. I don't know if shocked is the good word, but it's like this relief, like this burden takes off. Like the IFB religion, it was almost like strapped to it. Like mm. it was this this burden that, and you use the word performance, and that's exactly it. I mean, a, a lot of the things... Uh, Whereas, and on the good side of things, um, especially when I was a teenager and things like that, and and believing the scripture as how they taught it, and if you believe that about yourself, you were more, like, willing to be kind and empathetic to others, but those in the IFB that it was, like, those things such as, you know, all, you know, people who lie, people who steal, people who disobey their parents, or, you know, like, their little trippy things they talk about that was everybody else it was never them right yeah and when I said it I was like it's like they're not even saved or born again like they're saying the world isn't because I was seeing I remember walking on campus at the university and this was actually the the queer the LGBTQIA support group had a table up on campus one of their 
someone who utilized their services. She had gone home that Christmas and had been disowned by her family for coming out. And, the, you know, they had their pastor and, and the parents, their typical Midwest um, family and from the Midwest. And she got, you know, disowned by, by the family. And everybody in this LGBTQA center was surrounding her and taking donations for, like, gently used clothing, food, trying to get her a place to live so she wasn't on the street. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking in my heart and head, I'm supposed to be the Christian who shows the world who I am through my love. And here, the people that we've been, you know, you can't be gay and a Christian, you know, that, you know, like, that was really pounded in, like, if you're gay, you should get slapped across the face. I remember reading a Dennis Coral book about that, and that really impacted me as a young kid. Um, mm. But I'm looking at this, at these people that I'm supposed to, you know, the IFB teaching is very volatile about LGBTQA, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, okay, so I'm getting convicted here. I'm the Christian. I'm having an experience that I, you know, that the IFB says doesn't happen. And I go over to the table, and I just talk to them for a little bit. And that really um, was a big turning point for me in that if I'm, if I'm going to have faith, I need to have the type of faith as a grain of mustard seed. But it was like, it's do, not that doing is everything, but there's this complete blend of being and doing. If you're gonna, if you, if you are a kind person, you do kind acts. And I say that as somebody who, um, uh, I, I don't use a wheelchair or crutches or anything like that. Um, but I do have a lot of moments where I'm stuck in bed and on the couch and things. And if I'm going to be a kind person, I'm going to reach out to my friends. I'm going to see if they're okay. It doesn't right. take much. It's not like this huge expending of energy or performance-wise. There's a certain number or tally or thing you mark, like I learned in the ISB. It's out of like out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, but that kind of thing. And I, I'm just moved by this. And from there, I start meeting people from all walks of life, people who have come, uh, they grew up completely different than I and have come to the same place of understanding um, about God. So I, I still have my Christian faith, but uh, I didn't make the move to leave the IFB until about 2014, so about six years ago. And that was okay. after... Okay, so this is after I, I've been in therapy for a couple of years. I actually get diagnosed with um, a general anxiety disorder and complex or ongoing ongoing PTSD because of not being believed or validated that these things are happening to me. So <clears throat> I still go to therapy. Um, I still um, I don't I don't attend ISB. Um, I go to a reformed uh, church. Okay. I, uh, um, it's Reformed Baptist, the, the doctrine is still there, but there's, uh, what drew me there is when they were going over their, uh, church's documents for reporting sexual abuse, two, well, all of their deacons made the statement that we are not adopting this to protect the church. We're adapting this to protect the children and the vulnerable adults that 
maybe attending here. Mm-hmm. Others, we really don't want to do this for the insurance. And they, they asked specifically to the pastor, is the insurance making you do this? Because that's not why we're doing this. Right. And that that was very healing uh, for me to hear uh, back to speak and say that. Um, but like I said, it, it's reformed. So I never hear <laughs> that mental illness is Satan. I don't, I know, I the um I never hear messages that I need to correct clothing like those kind of cultural things of the IFB aren't um, a part of the church I go to I think I would be very triggered <laughs> right. to be attending services like that at this point um, right. but uh, yeah I didn't find that church till like, 2016 um, I've gone to some Episcopalian services that I've liked I I'd like the order and the the Book of Common Prayer, I guess, especially with how I handle anxiety and depression. Repetition is very calming and soothing. So mm-hmm. um I do enjoy an Episcopalian service myself. Right. Well it kinda answers the question I was gonna ask what's been most helpful for you in the recovery process, but I think that kind of it's you know, that some you've given some of those answers in your in your answer so far is like just finding communities that validate that abuse is a real thing, finding, you know, different prayers and things that are calming and and soothing when dealing with anxiety and things like that. Has there been anything else that's been helpful for you having left to kind of, you know, I guess, treat any of the wounds that are still there from the IFB? I mean, I'm assuming the poetry and writing is... <laughs> yeah, poetry and writing, uh, basically, I think there's this quote I use. And my second book is the one where I talk about my childhood sex, sexual abuse. I don't, I haven't really, this is actually the first time I've opened up about what happened at Bible College mm-hmm. with somebody, with you, and then also on a big way in the podcast because of just the type of, the, the influence and the um, narcissism of the church and college is so widespread that I mean it, it, it I talked about it in therapy before but this is the first time I've said anything in a big way about um, just getting on the surface of those five years that I spent at that Bible college but uh, medicate I'm just gonna say it medication um, as somebody who takes medication for my transplant and my disease and I, I've gotten diagnosed with diabetes now so I take that uh, taking medication for your general anxiety dis- anxiety disorder and PTSD is not a bad thing. <laughs> right. So taking that medication, going to my therapy appointments, talking to other people who um, have faith and also have gone through things, and even people, like some of my best friends are atheists, and they give me a perspective that I wouldn't, I guess, Including yourself, the diversity and inclusivity is a big thing, and it helps sharpen you in ways about your own, like what you may fear or uh, believe about yourself that really, it sounds counterproductive, but it's actually, um, I don't know, I've, I've found that having friends with differing beliefs is a comfort and right something that we to build other people up and then as somebody who's been tapping into the disability justice type movement and writing more towards that recently with um rare news websites there's so much diversity with disability i mentioned race gender sexuality all of that it's 
it helps you open up and be able to talk to so many different people and not just like right. a narrow, like, swamped pond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gets you out of that echo chamber a little bit to really yes. get to yes. Yeah, I get to hear other perspectives and, you know, I've said it a million times on the show, like, you know, you don't, truth has nowhere to hide, so you don't have to worry about getting around other perspectives and having conversations because at the end of the day, whatever's true is going to rise to the surface. So, um, but yeah, I think that's great. And I think one thing too that I think you hit on is really the stigma around, you know, taking medication for anxiety or depression. And I think, um, you know, you kind of really hit on the fact that, you know, you took, you know, you're taking those things to treat the physical, you know, the physical side. It's, there's nothing wrong or, you know, less okay about doing that for the mental side as well. So I like that you kind of tackled that because there is, there's a lot of stigma, especially coming out of the IFB, there's a lot of stigma around therapy itself. And then especially when you start talking about medication or things like that, there can be a huge pushback. So I love that you kind of hit that as being something that's been helpful to you. Um, I, I am curious if you could say something to someone who is maybe sitting where you sat, you know, years ago when you were sitting in the height of your involvement in the IFB, what would you say to someone like that? What would you say to someone who was in your position and maybe felt kind of trapped within that world? I would say, well, first of all, I would tell them that it's perfectly normal and okay to feel trapped. Um, and then I would tell them that it will be okay if you have to take a step back and start evaluating what do I believe about God and spiritually and who am I emotionally, mentally, what, what's going on here. It, it's, it's okay to do that. And it's okay to do that if you're still on the IFB, if you're ready to take steps forward, it's okay. Um, I know it can be completely scary, especially if the only people you've ever known exist in that paradigm of IFB. Uh, reaching out to people who have successfully left or are kind of in the halfway zone is right. definitely an important thing to do at the point where you're starting to feel trapped. This is the question I kind of end each of these conversations with, and it's, um, do you think for the IFB movement as a whole, do you think there's a hope for reform of that movement? Do you think that there's a hope that things could change for the better? Or do you think it's something where that movement kind of needs to be laid to rest and, you know, there's other options out there? I think the movement needs to be laid to rest and there's other options out there. Just not that I've seen every church's response, but the overwhelmingly denial of so many children and women and men that have come forward with sexual abuse stories being just completely uh, shoved under the rug just has me going, it, it really needs to end. Um, I, I, I uh, substitute taught for a Catholic school, and because mm. of the uh what what do I want to say in the 1990s when the Boston Globe exposed the sexual abuse with the priests because right. of that um the catholic church has had to make uh a lot of admissions and 
clean house, so to speak. Like I had to right. go through training just to be a sub teacher. I had to go through training on red flags in children who may be abused and red flags in adults who may be potential perpetrators. And uh, I know like even colleges where rapes happen on campuses and like secular places, unless they make apology statements or things, they're not operating in good faith to the public. So and I don't see the ISB doing that anytime soon because they're really big on on denial there and and the image, yeah, <laughs> really big on image. It, right, the the image, the image is there, and I mean we see this sadly. This is why like um, American versions of Christianity are starting to like rub my fur the wrong way um, because it's so political. But Republican Democrat politicizing everything and then making everything a religious statement that kind of all goes together. And uh, like Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Thesis on the, on the church wall, I feel like somebody needs to nail 95 Thesis on the IFB church and just be done. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like your podcast is part of that. So. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, I would love to see, um, you know, I'd love to see a lot of people change and a lot of churches slowly shift out. And I know that there are some, you know, I talked, I've talked about a little bit before on the show, but like, I know there are some who are truly independent of the movement and who, you know, don't care what, I just talked to someone last week who was saying like, I don't care what a pastor across the street thinks, like I'm going to, you know, do this and this to prevent abuse and take care of the people at my church. And like, there are those people out there. Um, but I think there's a lot there's a significant amount too that are closely identified with the movement and do very much care what their college alma mater is going to think or what, you know, what would Jack Kyles think or what would Jack Treber think or what would Paul Chapel think or fill in the blank. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I hope that there can be some change, but you know, with all the information that's out there and that there hasn't been a massive widespread reform, kind of leads me to think that that's not something that's in the in the cards but um you know sometimes i'm more optimistic about that than other days and then some days i'm pretty pessimistic about it i get the hope i I get the hope um i guess i'm having it less than i did before but i i I do i do get the hope in some ways Yeah, there's some days I feel like there's a good, you know, it's possible. And then there's some days <laughs> where it's easy to, to be like, well, it hasn't happened so far. So I, I highly doubt if this didn't do it. Um, that's how I felt when uh, recently when um, Stacey Shiflett put out his video. I don't know if you saw that, but um, it was an IFB pastor calling out IFB pastors for letting abuse run rampant within the movement. And I thought that was going to be the moment that opened the floodgates and changed everything. And it was crickets after that. And so, you know, stuff like that concerns me. And, you know, it makes me concerned for the people who are within it, who, you know, the good people who are in a bad system who are going to be hurt by this stuff. And so, um, but yeah, the best, the best we can do is share our stories. And I appreciate you really sharing your story and being super transparent about your, your journey um, through it and out of it. I really, I really appreciate that. You're welcome. And I do want to ask really quick, too. Um, I know you said you were writing a lot. Um, is there somewhere someone can find your work or be able to check out what you've been working on? And I can add them in the show notes, too. If you want to send me a, a link to stuff, I can I can add it in. I can do that. Um, the first book that I ever got out there was actually something I worked on when I was at 
the Bible college. So okay. if somebody read that, they may kind of, oh, this is where I was when I was a teenager in IFB, or they might feel that way with reading it. But um, my second book definitely talks about uh, the child sex abuse uh, that I experienced in my childhood church and then and then left. Um, and then I, I have a poetry book. And then I, I, I mentioned that as a disabled female, I write a lot for disability justice. So I can definitely uh, put down the, the online news site. And I have a, have a blog specifically toward rare disease awareness if people okay. are interested. Because I interview myself, a lot of people from different walks of life who have experienced disability, whether they come from Christian backgrounds or um, whatever their their major life story encompasses, I, I include that all. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely want to get those links and I can uh, I can get those set up where people can find that in the show notes. But um, but yeah, once again, thank you so much for, for jumping on and for, for talking to me a little bit. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity that you've given me. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.